my stories. I, I, I did the stories and the illustrations. Sometimes they would send us scripts, but I throw them out the window. I happen to be a guy who does what he wants, lives the way he wants to. I love people in general, even the villains in my comics. To me, a people, there is something in their lives that makes them become a problem to others. That's how I saw everything. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we enter into our Jack Kirby Month celebration. This is Angus. Kids, we have a king-sized lineup for you for this month of August, starting with Jack Kirby, the epic Life of the King of Comics. This is a brand new graphic novel done by Tom Scioli. And I will be giving you a full-blown review of that graphic novel biography of Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics. Next up, we will have, on the 8th of August, Red Raven Comics number 1. This comes from 1940. This was a Timely Comics Marvel-owned property, a very early Golden Age comic that Jack Kirby worked on with Joe Simon. After that, we turn our attention to the Jack Kirby Omnibus Sampler. This is a DC Comics Presents and focuses in on Jack's work at the time with House of Mystery and a lot of the detective and mystery comics of the day. House of Secrets... Tales of the Unexpected, My Greatest Adventure, all in here. We're going to do that one in a two-parter because it is an over 100-page spectacular. And I want to give those stories their proper due in those reviews. Those will be happening on the 12th of August and the 15th of August. Then we transition to The Sandman. And you're thinking, wait a second, The Sandman? Isn't that Neil Gaiman's property? Well, before it was ever Neil Gaiman's property, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon teamed up for Garrett Sanford to bring him into the Bronze Age. This was taking that old Sandman character and totally re-envisioning it. Completely different animal, but it would be the synthesis of some of the things done in that series, along with the traditional Sandman that Neil Gaiman would then take as a source of inspiration for the completely mind-blowing, lore-infused, mythological tale and world that Gaiman would later develop in the late 80s and into the 90s with Sandman. After that, we move on to Jack Kirby's Kudos Kirby series, Challengers of the Unknown, number four. And we check in with those heroes that Jack brought to life. And we've been profiling them throughout this entire year of 2020 on Kudos Kirby. So another installment of that. And that happens on August 22nd. Then we go to August 26th, where I'll be reviewing 2001 A Space Odyssey, a Marvel Treasury series that was a single one-shot book, which then 
became a comic book series for Jack Kirby. It was part of his agreement to bring him back to Marvel after having been at DC. And this would be a faithful adaptation of the movie into comic book form. So again, we'll be reviewing that on August 26th. And finally, we round out Jack Kirby Month with Jack Kirby Roundtable, where we will focus on the Eternals. Jack, big exclamation point, coming back to Marvel... Having done New Gods over DC, Jack, could you bring us a New Gods? Could you do something on that mythological epic scale? Well, indeed, Jack delivered with The Eternals. And of course, this is being made into a Marvel movie, which was supposed to have come out this past November, December, but has obviously been delayed because of the pandemic. But nonetheless, it is our graphic novel of the month for August. And I would just like to give you a bit of context. And this comes from Robert Greenberger, Jack Kirby and the Eternals. Kirby was coming back. After a five-year hiatus, Jack Kirby was returning to Marvel Comics in 1975. Similar to his just-ended contract with DC Comics, the King would write, pencil, and edit a line of comics from his California home. At this point in his illustrious career, Kirby had big ideas, still waiting to make it onto the page, and as a result, he didn't want to repeat himself. Still, publisher Stan Lee and then editor-in-chief Roy Thomas wanted Kirby's energy to infuse some of the core titles. Reluctantly, Kirby returned to Captain America and helped relaunch the Black Panther. His imagination would not be earthbound, so he agreed to adapt the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, which led to an ongoing title which begat the popular character Machine Man. Kirby wasn't done, though. Always captivated by the notion of legends, he thought heroic legends were created by people who needed something to look up to to ease their sufferings since so much of man's early history was a struggle. A Viking would come back from a battle, feeling tired and covered in blood. But he knew atop the mountain, Thor was still fighting the good fight. Such notions influenced much of his work dating back to Captain America, addressing a far more modern need. Ever since his tenure on Thor in the 1960s, Kirby liked the notion of aliens being perceived by humans as gods. Now back at Marvel, he still wanted to explore the theme. The timing was fortuitous, given Eric Von Denken's best-selling book, Chariot of the Gods, which discussed the idea that aliens had visited Earth in the distant past, influencing ancient cultures, including the Mayans. Marvel thought the idea had merit, as they had already jumped on the bandwagon for the first issue of Marvel Premiere in 1975. Kirby was given the green light to produce The Celestials. As Kirby set to work, it was decided to rename the title Return of the Gods in order to cement the relationship in consumers' minds. A logo had been created, which had even been used in several house ads before the legal department stepped in and had it removed. They felt the type treatment was close to an infringement, so the final title became The Eternals. The first issue arrived, covered dated July 1976, and continued for 19 issues and one annual, one of the longer runs for a Kirby creation that decade. In an introductory text piece, Kirby wrote, How do we view the Eternals? That is the question, and it's a big question because it involves us all in a great comic adventure, which began when the dinosaurs split the scene and humanity was first pushed on stage of what universal gong show we call history. Something happened back there, among the steaming ferns and moving continents of prehistoric Earth, and neither Walter Cronkite nor Howard Cosell nor your ever-loving current events teacher was there to take notes on the events we must nowadays sift from the myths. 
the mummies, the skeletons that lay buried beneath tons of soil. So, what happened there in that unreported, unwritten, mystifying beginning of all things? How many mammoth events provided the oil which still spins the wheels of this plastic pickle works we hail as modern civilization? I feel that playing around with this sort of conjecture is highly entertaining, and that we should aim our gun sights at the giant puzzle we've inherited more often. We can't leave it all to the professors, pundits, and paperback prophets. The puzzle belongs to you and me as well. In the telling, Kirby postulated that a race known as the Celestials had come to Earth during the early days of life. These titanic armored figures came from the far reaches of the cosmos to various planets to weigh and measure life as it was developing. Their studios occur over countless years in four visits with different delegations known as hosts. The first hosts arrived on Earth about one million years ago and began their experiments with the humanoids found at that time. As a result, two new species were created, Eternal and Deviant. The Eternals were given superior genetics imbued with cosmic energies that took centuries to discover and master. Deviants, on the other hand, were given an unstable genetic code which caused them to mutate over the years. The second host arrived some 20 thousand years back when the Deviants had managed to forge a worldwide government based in Lumeria, crushing any human resistance. During one such attack, the city of Atlantis sank. In their hubris, they thought to challenge their creators. The Celestials had other ideas, and much of the Deviant civilization was eradicated during the Great Cataclysm, including the sinking of the continent of Mu, and man was left to evolve on his own. The Eternals kept to themselves in their polar retreat, recognizing their advanced abilities, would frighten the humans. Among them, one stood out, having fought brave battles, but then was shunned by man and even Eternal, earning the title The Forgotten One. There were other periodic exchanges between Eternal and human, such as the Eternal later named Icarus, marrying a human woman and having a son, Icarus. When the son died, Icarus adopted the name in tribute. Best known are the exploit of Circe, the bombastic woman who enjoyed dealing with man and his culture. She frequently walked through man's world, savoring hedonistic pleasures, notably dancing. They were nobly led by Kronos until his death when the son, Zorus, succeeded him. Zorus was the prime eternal until the arrival of the fourth host and is noted for being the first to combine the eternals into the Unimind. Zeus perfected the ritual that brings just about all Eternals together so their cosmic energy can be merged into a brain-like construct. Much remains to be learned about the Unimind, but it has been formed only during times of great crises requiring a unified effort. The records indicate humans and deviants have also been tapped to help form the Unimind, which showed its adaptability. About 1000 BC heralded the third host. Their duties described by the Eternal Ajax as inspection and cultivation. The Incas worshipped the visiting hosts as gods while instilling fear in others around the globe. The eternal Ajax spoke directly with the Celestials protecting their base and then placed himself in suspended animation, awaiting the fourth host. In the 19th century, the eternal Icarus sensed it was time to prepare Earth for the host's arrival and left his home to interact with man. Using the name Ike Harris, Icarus dealt with humans for the first time since the third host and marveled at the changes. The fourth host came to Earth in the recent past, ready to render judgment and the setting for Kirby's run. They witnessed what man had wrought 
as well as the resumption of the ages-old conflict between Eternal and Deviant. The Deviants sought to either gain favor with the host or see it to no one's benefit. The Eternals, meanwhile, sought to preserve not only their lives, but that of the noble, less powerful humans, whom they saw as having great potential. A small group known as the Young Gods made a gift of themselves to the Celestials to show how well the experiment had worked. Arisham, leader of the fourth host, accepted them and gave Earth his verdict, a thumbs up. Sales were solid, but never spectacular. Looking back, historians Jerry Jones and Will Jacobs called it great fun, while Peter Sanderson in Marvel Universe called it Kirby's last great creative achievement. He wrote, like much of Kirby's work for Marvel and DC in the 1960s and 1970s, The Eternals is an inquiry into the nature of God. Working with Lee, Kirby had created The Stranger in X-Men, Odin and the High Evolutionary in Thor, The Source in The New Gods, The Watcher and Galactus in The Fantastic Four. Now, now working in his own The Eternals, he presented us with Space Gods, the Celestials. The Eternals is memorable for its characters as it is for Kirby's epic feats of visualization. There was the shadowy, brooding figure of the Forgotten One, the Eternal who was known to ancient civilizations as Gilgamesh, Samson, and Hercules. There was Crow, the demonic military leaders of the Deviants, who, despite his ruthlessness, was still gripped by passion for his former lover, Thena, and fiery warrior daughter, Zorus, monarch of the Eternals. And there was Cersei, perhaps the most fascinating of all, an Eternal with many sides to her personality. She was known to the Deviants as Cersei the Terrible, for her temper and her ability to alter the shapes of persons or objects at will, as when she transformed Ulysses' men to pigs in ancient times. Cersei explained that Homer had misspelled her name in the Odyssey. Despite its considerable merits, the original Eternal series was not a commercial success, perhaps because Kirby dealt with his large cast of characters as a true ensemble, continually shifting the focus from one group in one issue to another set in the next. There was no central heroic figure who appeared in every storyline. While most comics of the day focused on one or two main characters, even the team books such as the Avengers and X-Men kept focus tight on a handful of protagonists and gently shifting that focus over the course of issues. Not Kirby, whose kinetic storytelling meant readers were treated to a rush of concepts, one coming after the other, with little time spent fully exploring any one character or concept. As a result, his titles tended to either be embraced by fans who loved the art and energy, or shunned by those who were left breathless. Ray Wynum Jr. in The Art of Jack Kirby suggested, although the story writing in Eternals was fragmented and distracting, Kirby's pseudo- techno designs were as fascinating as ever. In Kirby's mind, his space saga was in its own reality, divorced from the Marvel Universe. By 1977, though, editors back in New York wanted to play with his concepts and thought the book would benefit from the familiar superheroes and supervillains making appearances. Kirby, by then, was already battling with editors over the way his dialogue had been altered without approval in his various titles. In an effort to be one of the gang, he made a few attempts to acknowledge the Marvel Universe in his Cosmic series. Shield agents began to show up, followed by one of his earliest hits, The Thing. However, the blue eyed adventurer proved to be a regular Joe whose features were momentarily transformed into a likeness of the Fantastic Four hero Barcerci. Another attempt had been the appearance by the Hulk. But this, too, proved to be a falsity. This one was a cosmically enhanced robot. After 1978, Kirby stopped 
the title. And the characters were fair game to the next generation of editors, writers, and artists, many of whom were strongly influenced by Kirby's creations and were eager to play with him. But none of the series featuring these entities was proven successful, a track record likely to change with 2006's miniseries from Neil Gaiman and John Romita Jr. When the announcement was made, Gaiman said, what drew me to it was not the God side of things, but the incredible long-lived nature of things. I just love the idea of seeing two people standing in a town square looking at a statue of themselves that was erected 1,000 years before. It was kind of the opportunity to create a mythology. In 1602, I recreated everything that had happened in the Marvel Universe because they'd got it right. The Eternals still had that amazing Jack Kirby outpouring of ideas, and there were some amazing things, but he didn't get it right. It's sort of weird and lumpy. And that is the introduction to the series by Robert Greenberger, Jack Kirby and the Eternals. We will be reading not only the Eternals Volume 1 as our graphic novel of the month, but we will also be reading as our comic book character of the month is also the Eternals, Eternals by Neil Gaiman. That will be a fascinating compare and contrast and the way in which Neil uses another character once again of Jack Kirby's to make or enhance the mythos or story of those characters. Kids, welcome to Jack Kirby Month here on Kirby's Kids. And for our last segment, I have compiled a best of Kirby kernels over the past 18 months that we have been doing our graphic novel reviews, we have a segment in every one of those reviews called Kirby Kernel, which sheds light, a little kernel of knowledge, on our namesake Jack. We hope you enjoy this compilation of Kirby Kernels, and please join us for our celebration and reads throughout the month of August here for Jack Kirby Month on Kirby's Kids. Hey, Wilford! Fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. Our Kirby Colonel for today, the late 1970s. Jack Kirby left comics to go to work for animation studios such as Hanna-Barbera and Ruby Spears. He did designs for such shows as Thundar the Barbarian and Turbo Teen. <laughs> well, one of those is good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I just recently learned about this. Thundar Bar the Barbarian was a favorite of mine as a kid. Me too. And um, I, I knew about Ruby Spears and their collaboration on the three main characters. I did not know that Jack Kirby was on contract with Ruby Spears and that he developed a lot of the sets and uh, just kind of the whole, basically the world of Thundar. That's amazing. Yeah. And and what's amazing about that too is I've always compared that with Kamandi. Commandy, I'm not sure how you say that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But the Commandy series also by Jack Kirby that has a very similar feel and yet is completely different. Very true. You're yeah. right. Yeah. You're right. Were you a Thundar fan? Oh, huge Thundar fan. And of course, with both of us being gamers as kids, that just fed right into that particular love 
Yeah. Uh, when you talk about that, you know, post-apocalyptic world thing where fantasy meets science fiction, it was a cool mashup there. You've, you had the princess, you had Ukla the Mock, who's kind of like this Wookiee-ish furry kind of thing guy there. And yeah, kind of half ape, half cat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really, really funky. I loved his horse. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh, what was that thing? <laughs> Had that, kind of a snaky insect, insect avoid kind of look to oh, it. Oh yeah, it, so it, cool. it was. It was very, very cool. And uh, so, you know, kudos to Jack. I mean, first he's, you know, there at Marvel and then he hops over to DC, does New Gods, which of course we'll be covering in August. And then he goes into animation. Why not? Well, he was just a natural storyteller. Um, Speaking of which, you you mentioned New Gods. I think one of the places that you can really see Jack's influence in Thundar is the design of the sorcerers, um, such as Gemini, the the guy with two faces that wears the kind of modified spacesuit. That he would that that sorcerer would easily fit into the New Gods, right? They have a very similar look. That Jack Kirby costuming. You named it. You just nailed it. Yes, agree. So yeah, according now there. Was a, actually, I'm just going to cast off a reference to another podcast. If you're interested, there's a podcast out there called Thundar Road, and uh, it's all about Thundar the Barbarian, and they tackle it in not in episode order, but in the order as if uh, that would make sense if Thundar were traveling across the United States. They kinda, yeah, they kind of mapped it, but I think geographic the, chronology. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I there were two episodes of that uh, podcast that I specifically would recommend, and they are interviews with Buzz. Is it Buzz Dixon? I can't remember this. I believe that is correct. It sounds right. Yeah, um, but but one of the um, idea guys or one of the creators at Ruby Spears, and you get a lot of insight into how that show was created, and some uh, personal notes about Jack in that interview as well. Oh yeah, those side stories were fantastic. Wasn't it fun? That was oh, a great yeah. lesson. Oh yeah, particularly their big in the creative process in some of those rooms and how those conversations went. That was tremendous. Yeah. Next up, let's head over to some creative chatter where we'll focus in on Alan Moore, our writer, and Dave Gibbons, our artist illustrator. little kernel of knowledge. Yeah, what have, you, what have you got for me today? Well, Jack Kirby did storyboards for the fake sci-fi film depicted in the movie Argo. Really? Yeah, and that one kind of blew me away, because when I first saw Argo, I didn't put two and two together, and I figured out why. He had long been hired to draw concept art for a movie of the science fiction novel Lord of Light. Okay, Roger Zelazny. There you go, exactly. As well as for a science fiction amusement park. So obviously, Hmm. you know... Sid and Marty Croft or something? Who knows? (laughs) You know, but the movie never happened. But the CIA, of all folks, go figure, ended up using the drawings as part of a fake film production to help free Americans trapped in Iran during the Iranian hostage crisis. The story was told in the Ben Affleck film Argo, and someone playing Kirby is shown in the film, though not referred to by name. And that's the thing that threw me, because... You know, I yeah, I want to go back and look at the movie now and see yeah. if I see a buzz cut and a cigar. Exactly. Yeah. So do I. So it really has me intrigued. But that's uh, quite the interesting story there and, and connection for Jack. I think if somebody's playing Kirby true to character, we'd recognize him right away. You would think so. Yeah. You would think so. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it is. It is. This was a very interesting project. 
and was actually in response to a previous work that Jack had done. Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy, again, are the creations of Jack Kirby, who scripted and penciled all nine issues of this first series. Devil Dinosaur was created during Kirby's third stint at Marvel, which ran from 1975 to 1978. Having learned that DC Comics was working on an animated series featuring Kirby's Commandi, Marvel attempted to one-up their competitor by instructing Kirby to create a series similar to Commandi, but incorporating a dinosaur co-star, since dinosaurs were hugely popular with young audiences of the time. I can just imagine the conversation between Stan Lee and Jack Kirby on this particular subject. Yeah, it must have been fascinating. The resulting Devil Dinosaur series was short-lived, lasting only nine months from April through December 1978. And the proposed animated series sadly never entered development. The original Devil Dinosaur series chronicled Devil and Moon Boy's adventures in their own home, Dinosaur World. After the cancellation of Devil Dinosaur, the characters' appearances were relegated to one-shot comics, cameos, and supporting roles in other series. Let's take a look now at Devil Dinosaur and what Jack's creation brought to bear. Our Kirby kernel for today is the creation of Captain America, because Captain America was created by none other than Jack Kirby, along with his partner, Joe Simon. Cap's birthplace was at Timely Comics, the company that would eventually become Marvel. And given that Captain America was created in the early 40s, actually his premiere issue went on sale in December of 1940, his ultra-patriotic nature had a purpose. Simon and Kirby were not exactly the biggest fans of the Nazis, and the United States had yet to enter into the war. So it was this vehicle, the creation of Captain America, that would spur on Joe Simon and Jack Kirby to want to get America into the fight and do what is right. The cover of Captain America number one was Steve Rogers punching Hitler in the face. And Captain America number two, subsequently, was Steve Rogers about to punch Hitler in the face. Granted, not every cat book had its hero in some stage of Fuhrer bashing or assaulting, but pounding on Nazis was a common occurrence in Cap's early days. And then, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Cap graciously included Emperor Hirohito in his campaign of punching everyone we fought in World War II. His fist-based patriotism was a colossal hit with American comics readers. That first Captain America book sold nearly one million copies, and unlike most comic heroes at the time, Captain America didn't start out as a side story in an anthology series. His first appearance was all his in Captain America number one. And like any popular hero of the 40s, Captain America was soon the star of his very own film serial, a film serial that can only loosely be referred to as Captain America, as it had nothing to do with the character besides the costume. Comics Cap was Steve Rogers. Serial Cap was Grant Gardner. Comics Cap was a toothpick of an army recruit muscled up with experimental drugs. Serial Cap in the films was a district attorney with an extremely dad-like physique. Comics Cap wielded his trademark shield. Serial Cap shot people point-blank in the stomach with a revolver. Also, no Nazis and no intrepid boy sidekick Bucky Barnes to be had from Serial Cap. Serial did quite well. Cap's initial popularity began to wane however, and World War II was over, and there were no more Hitlers and Hirohitos to valiantly beat up. Making matters worse was the decline of the superhero genre in the late 40s. Cap's final two Golden Age issues were rebranded into something a little less superhero-y, retitled Captain America Weird Tales. One issue had 
Cap dragged to hell and winning his freedom by knocking out the Red Skull. The second didn't have a single Cap story in it, and that was the end, at least for a while. Now, let's move on to a little creative chatter. We'll dive a little deeper into our two creative artists, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Tales of Suspense is a comic book anthology series of one-shot comics published by Marvel. It ran from 1959 to 1968, began as a science fiction anthology that served as a showcase for such artists as Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and Don Hack. Then featured superheroes Captain America and Iron Man during the Silver Age of comic books before changing its title to Captain America with issue number 100. Its sister title was Tales to Astonish. Both Tales of Suspense and Tales to Astonish were both launched with a January 1959 cover date. Initially published under Atlas, the 1950s forerunner of Marvel, it fell under the Marvel banner with issue number 19 in July 1961. It contained science fiction mystery suspense stories written primarily by editor-in-chief Stan Lee and his brother Larry Lieber, with artists Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and Don Heck contributing. Issue number 9, May 1960 introduced Shondu, the mystic, as an anthological story character. He would be reintroduced as a supervillain in the 1970s. It would not be until November 1961 that Fantastic Four No. 1 would hit the newsstands and save Marvel, ushering in their entrance into the Silver Age of comics. The reason I mention this is because Tales was essentially a platform to showcase the remaining talent there at Marvel and to appeal to a wide audience just to keep the company afloat. Issue number 39 finally brought in the superhero genre, and that was none other than Iron Man, created by editor and plotter Stan Lee, scripted by his brother Lieber, and the artists would be Heck and Jack Kirby. Iron Man starred in a 13-page but occasionally 18-page adventures, with the rest of Tales of Suspense devoted to the anthological science fiction and fantasy stories that normally ran in the comic. Issues number 49 through 58, which ran from January to October of 64, would have one anthological story in each issue, and it acquired a framing sequence and ran as Tales of the Watcher, narrated by the namesake Cosmic witness introduced in Fantastic Four number 13 and used as a Marvel Universe supporting character since beginning with number 59 November 1964 Iron Man began sharing the now split bulk with Captain America who had guest starred in the Iron Man feature the previous issue. Jack Kirby, Captain America's co-creator during the 1940s golden age of comic books, had drawn the character as part of the superhero team, the Avengers, earlier that year, and now was illustrating his hero's soul adventures for the first time since 1941. Issue number 63 in March of 65, in which editor Stan Lee retold Captain America's origin, ran in a series of issues through number 71 to November of 1965. These featured period stories set during World War II and co-starred Captain America's Golden Age sidekick, James Buchanan Barnes, otherwise known as Bucky. Sharon Carter was introduced in issue number 75 in March of 1966 and later became a love interest for Captain America. The Red Skull, Captain America's major nemesis in the World War II era, was revived in the present day in issue number 79 in July of 1966 and then would be featured in a two-part story through issues number 80 
and 81, which we're profiling today. Now let's move over to a little creative chatter where we'll discuss our writer Stan Lee and our artist Jack Kirby and their early professional history together. So on our Kirby kernel in 1950, alongside notorious creative partner and classic comics gem Joe Simon, with whom he co-created Captain America, which of course is the featured character here in April on Kirby's Kids, Kirby spearheaded an ambitiously risky, non-gore-infused mythology called Black Magic. In fact, an anthologized story called Beautiful Freak from issue number 29 was used as a means to establish the comic's code due to its supposedly controversial subject matter concerning human deformities and murder. The series lasted for an impressive 11-year run before it was unfortunately canceled, but his unforgettable contributions to the book were reprinted as a nine-issue series published by DC Comics between 1973 and 1975. So are you saying we can actually blame Jack Kirby a little bit for the comics code? Yes, we can. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? It doesn't. I mean, what what really did Jack not touch or influence throughout his career? He's the Forrest Gump of the comic world. R really? He truly is. <laughs> <laughs> He's worked with about everybody. I mean, and you figure, look, if you worked for the two largest houses, and then on top of that, you were doing freelance work. I mean, come on now. And then you go into animation. I mean, what's crazy about his career is he first starts in animation doing Popeye and Betty Boop. And then in that late 70s there, we've well chronicled Thundar the Barbarian. Jack had a super long career too, which leads into that. I mean, he, he worked for decades, so. Okay, so let's move on to a little creative chatter and discuss our writers and artists of both of these Elric volumes. Our Kirby kernel for today is a story or fact about Jack Kirby, and we're going to focus in on a complimentary character Jack had developed, and that is Etrigan the Demon, which first appeared in The Demon Number 1, August 1972, and again was created by Jack. He created The Demon when his fourth world titles were canceled. According to Mark Evanier, Kirby had no interest in horror comics, but created Etrigan in response to a demand from DC for a horror character. Kirby was annoyed that the first issue sold so well that DC required him to do 16 issues and abandon the fourth world titles before he was done with them. Etrigan is a demon from hell who, despite his violent tendencies, usually finds himself allied with the forces of good, mainly because of the alliance between the heroic characters of the DC Universe and Jason Blood a human to whom Etrigan is bound. Etrigan is a muscular humanoid creature with orangey-yellowish skin, horns, red eyes, pointed webbed ears. The character was originally based in Gotham City, leading to numerous team-ups with Batman. Etrigan was inspired by a comic strip of Prince Valiant in which that character dressed as a demon. Kirby gave his creation the same appearance as Valiant's mask. Wow, that's a great kernel, Angus. I never knew that about Etrigan's source inspiration. Did you know that the demon first appears in the DC Universe between Swamp Thing's two appearances, which you've discussed in other episodes, House of Secrets number 92 and Swamp Thing volume 1 number 1? Now, I believe the first time that these two cross paths is in the pages of the stories we're covering in this episode. 
And what I always found interesting about the demon is his use of rhyming speech. I'm amazed when writers for this character are able to pull that off so well. No, those are some fantastic observations and insights, JJ. I, I could not agree with you more with respect to how writers are able to pull that off with that particular character and you know I, I almost feel that when jack created this character it, it was almost him thumbing his nose at dc saying okay well you want me to make a horror character so bad i'm gonna now have this demon speak in rhyming speech even make it that much more difficult <laughs> in the hopes that oh my gosh what is this you created jack how could we possibly you know perpetuate this and sure enough he does a 16 issues with this character. Amazing. It is. And, you know, I love the fact that Moore brings this character ultimately back into his Swamp Thing universe, which we will delve a little deeper into. So let's go ahead and engage in a little creative chatter and talk about our writer and artist of Saga of the Swamp Thing, book one. What are we going to learn about our patron saint today? You know, you knew I would come up with something. And that is, let's talk collage as a creative outlet and jack was into collage big time its true origins can be traced back to ancient japan and examples exist during the 13th century in persia turkey and eventually europe by the 1600s the modern version that first captured the public's attention was created in 1912 when pablo picasso glued newspaper clippings into a cubist painting and artists and the general public's fascination with collage then began in the 20th century but beginning in 1964 with the fantastic four jack kirby created collages to convey fanciful scenes of cosmic dimensions these early comic collages were used to further the storytelling and appear to be created concurrently while he was doing that work. However, according to former assistant and Kirby biographer Mark Evanier, by the 1970s, Kirby would often create collages from his collection of photographic magazines such as National Geographic and Life whenever the mood struck him and make good use of them at that later date. So considering that he was one of the fastest artists in comics and that he also worked upwards of 70 to 80 hours a week at his drawing board during this period, why on earth would Jack Kirby slow himself down to create collage? Well, think about this for a second. First of all, collage is a uniquely 20th century art form because you can't really do collage until you have pulp magazines, right? You have to have things to cut up. Nobody's going to cut up paintings to make a collage. You're going to cut up cheap newspapers and, and publications and, and you need visuals and so newspapers before the early 20th century you know didn't really have a lot of pictures in them so the collage kind of starts with that like you said the cubists the italian futurists and then going into really the kind of pop art and even today there's still a lot of collage going on i think what jack was probably doing though i remember doing a lot of collage in my sketchbooks in art school sometimes you want to get an idea out quickly and you know you could spend a lot of time kind of drawn in like a city in the background or something or you could just cut out a bit of New York skyline and, and paste it in there and then paste something else over top of it. Sometimes I would lay down references for color. Sometimes you lay down references for texture. So I wonder if the collages were more about creating finished pieces or if they were more about uh, assembling story ideas and layout ideas for himself. That's a brilliant point. 
because right would you even go to the point of saying the collage is almost visual outlining as it relates to visual storytelling that's right so it's kind of the equivalent today of building a mood board right but but with more dynamic like what am i trying to say composition elements right so as opposed to just putting post-its on a wall you really are designing flow and lines and uh, space composition with it as well as texture color all that it's a very quick way to work quick way to lay out an idea quick way to capture a mood so yeah i I would imagine that's what he was doing which is funny because he was so fast i wonder how much you know i I would like to see a speed competition between him laying out something in collage and just drawing it Oh my goodness, yes. And I have a feeling some of this could have been a combination of indeed what you just described and also a bit of escapism for him. Sure. Yeah, well, the truth is his hand probably got tired. I've had drawings where I've worked for 70 hours, on the, not straight, but you know, within like, let's say a two week period on a drawing, you start working five, six hours straight on something, your hand starts cramping. You need a break. You got to get up, your back hurts, whatever. So I'm sure that was, yeah, it was shifting gears, right? Exactly. And apparently he had a kindred spirit in that love for collage that none other than Louis Armstrong had a huge collage output. He created over 500 collages while touring 300 plus states around the world during that similar time. I'm going to have to look those up now. I'm always amazed at this kind of sideways creative outlets that people have. Muhammad Ali was a creative person, and we tend to think of his creativity both in the ring and in his crazy poetry. But he was a painter, and he did some really cool paintings. They kind of have a primitive, like, goofy joy to them, but the more you look at them, the smarter they get. Right. At first, it looks like a joke. And then you, the more you look at him, you think these are pretty cool. And I love it when you when you learn that about somebody who's primarily known for one creative outlet and then has another, you know, they're a musician like Hugh Laurie, for instance, is a, a good jazz musician, good piano player. And I, I love learning those things. Oh, he indeed is an absolutely amazing artist. It is really cool to see another one that I know of is Rick Allen the drummer from Def Leppard, the one-armed drummer from Def Leppard, is an incredible painter. So he chose to channel his visual arts love and passion into painting and has done some really cool work and has gone on to display his collections at various galleries. Right. Hey, to draw it back to our subject area, I can remember a couple of collages in the Fantastic Four that were pretty cool. But, you know, I'm thinking about how that influenced comics. So you go up to like our very first read for this club was Sandman and the covers of Sandman were collages or um, constructed compositions, kind of shadow boxy type compositions, but they had like collage in them. And I've seen that technique done you know in comics since then i don't know if i had ever seen it before jack doing it indeed that's true i recollect ditko and he most likely was influenced by kirby doing similar collage influenced and and i refer to to some of these full length comic book pages single panel as almost poster art of the day and it's amazing to see. Yeah. Well, and you got to figure that's an artistic community. So they're going to feed off of each other. And Ditko was huge into like psychedelic patterning. And so you can see that maybe the collage influence drifted from Kirby to Ditko. But the design influence of Ditko, I think, might have given rise to Kirby Crackle. You know, you can see traces of each of their work and the others. Yes. And I'd also say another kindred spirit with them was Jim Steranko, too. Steranko's art just 
just oozes pulp. And of course, as you just mentioned, pulp being an enabler for collage. Right, right, for sure. So why don't we now head on over to a little creative chatter where we discuss our writer, Kazuo Kaioki, and also our artist, Joseki Kojima. This particular Kirby kernel comes to us from none other than Mark Evanier, who is Jack's official biographer and fellow comic book and animation TV writer. Mark was very close to Jack and actually worked with him when Jack moved out to the West Coast and was in Thousand Oaks and had set up his studio out there. Mark chronicles in his blog that the first five stories that Jack wrote when he came over to DC were in this order, Forever People number one, New Gods number one, Mr. Miracle number one, Jimmy Olsen number 133, and Jimmy Olsen number 134. Superman appeared in The Forever People, and Superman and Jimmy Olsen appeared in the last two. When Jack delivered the material and pencil, some folks up at DC said, in effect, "Mm, we can't have Superman and Jimmy Olsen looking like that. The company went through periods when they felt it was essential to their merchandising plans for certain trademark characters to not deviate from the approved company model. That that's that's amazing right there (laughs) i mean you just recruited jack kirby away from marvel you've asked him to come over and draw superman okay so mark continues i happen to think they were too fussy about this i'm sure that the other management at other times wouldn't have cared but at the time that was the policy retouching was also being done occasionally to other artists superman's heads were redrawn in one or two of the supergirl stories that mike sikowski was then drawing for dc even though sikowski's interpretation of the man of steel had appeared usually unaltered for years in the Justice League of America comic. Alex Toth drew a new story and new front and back covers for a 1975 Super Friends special. Toth's version of Superman was left as is on the story and the back cover. And of course, this was all appearing on TV every week. I mean, come on. You and I grew up watching Super Friends. But for the front cover, the head of his Superman figure was replaced with an old Kurt Swan photostat. Holy slap in the face, Batman. You know, there's nothing wrong with that version. But DC was selling a Jack Kirby Superman. And, you know, it, and it's not like Kirby was this unknown artist that they were giving a shot to. And then they kind of like, oh, we better curb our bets here. And, you know, let's just go back to the classics. I mean, Kirby had a following. I would have, people would have bought that just because they wanted to see Kirby's interpretation of Superman. It's, it's, it's just insane thinking that, looking back at that now. It is insane. Exactly, Doc. Exactly. And Mark Evanier continues saying that another perhaps lesser factor, but he felt a big one in cultivating a DC look with some there taking a certain pride in the fact that the art in their books didn't resemble the inferior to them artwork in the Marvel titles. Wait a second, you just again recruited Jack Kirby to be Jack Kirby. So along comes Jack Kirby. And what he does, almost by definition, is the Marvel version of the jewel in the DC crown, Superman. And to some in the office, that just didn't look right. Jack 
hated that they were doing this, though he was such a good sport about it that he apparently convinced some at the office that he thought he was fine with it, but he thought it was insulting ultimately. And he also thought it was just bad business. If you're selling the fans a Superman by Kirby, you ought to give them a Superman by Kirby. Moreover, he was never that wild about drawing other folks' characters anyway and felt that if DC didn't want to publish a Kirby Superman, they shouldn't have him on the comic that featured Superman. He also thought it was odd that they were constantly talking about modernizing Superman and bringing him into the 70s, but confronted with a new approach, they immediately called in a guy. Okay, and this was Plastino, who'd been drawing Superman since 1948. Plastino was not even being given work on Superman comics at the time because his style was regarded as old-fashioned. Wow. Really? It really it makes you wonder if DC really wanted Kirby or if they just didn't want Marvel to have Kirby. <laughs> yeah, or you know what? Maybe they were just so taken by Jack's dissatisfaction with Marvel that they said, you know what, L let's let's bring him over. He's got a following and see if we can commercially capitalize Jack. Not even thinking about perhaps the culture clash that might ensue. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? But it was like if, if tomorrow it was announced that Greg Capullo was going to be doing Daredevil, I would immediately be signed up on my pull list to grab those Daredevils. And if I got like an old, you know, 1960s version or whatever of, 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 uh, of Daredevil, I would be, I would be kind of mad. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure fans may have reacted the same way back then to it. It's like, you know, we want to see these new interpretations. They're fun to, they're fun to see. Excellent point, Doc. Excellent point. And with that, folks, let's go ahead and transition into a little creative chatter. And what we'll be doing in this segment is profiling the four teams that were brought together to create the story arc for the death of Superman. Jack Kirby did work at Image Comics late in his life, but now company co-founder Jim Valentino has revealed an even deeper connection to the iconic creator and that creator-owned company. In a Facebook post, the Shadowhawk creator himself explained in January of 1992, one month before Image Comics was announced, he reached out to the Kirby family at the behest of Todd McFarlane to ask if they would emblazon all of the Image Comics with Jack Kirby Presents to contrast it with Marvel's long-running tagline of Stan Lee Presents. So... The gauntlet was being thrown. As is detailed by Jim Valentino, I called up the Kirby house and Roz answered the phone. Hello, Roz. This is Jim Valentino. Hello, Jim. How are you? I'm fine. Listen, this hasn't been made public yet, but we would like you and Jack to know what a group of us are going to do. And with that, I explained Image to her, who was involved and what we wanted to do. Break away from Marvel, start a company that would allow creators full ownership of their properties where they and not the corporation would benefit from their creations. When I was finished, she asked me to hang on. Jack was working and she wanted to tell him. She came back a few minutes later, pretty choked up and told me that we had hers and Jack's full support. Valentino continued, she told me that Jack thought what we were doing was wonderful and ended the phone call with a teary, God bless you boys. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think of that? I mean, they're clearly hitting Jack in the feels there. Oh, oh for sure. And really, they understood the real struggles that Jack had throughout his entire career for maintaining his artistic integrity 
while also wanting ownership of his creations and how poorly Jack was treated by both of the major houses at various given times in his career. I mean, just that ping pong effect between working for what would then become DC Comics and then over to Marvel and then back to DC and then back to Marvel. I mean, it was just absolutely crazy. And all of it centered around that creative autonomy and that desire for Jack to be appreciated and to have some sort of ownership stake in his own work. Image Comics ultimately didn't use the Jack Kirby's Presents tagline, but the prospects started a deeper relationship between Image founders and the Kirby family. From that moment on, anytime she mentioned us, Roz called us the Image Boys. It remains a source of pride to this very day and will be for the rest of my life. Image eventually published Kirby's Phantom Force, co-written with Michael Thobodeau and Richard French, with Rob Liefeld and several other image founders inking over Kirby's pencils. And this was really, really late in his career and close to Jack's death that this all had occurred. Yeah, I'm glad they I'm glad they didn't end up using the Jack Kirby presents just because for me when I read this story, um, on one level it's kind of cool, on another level it seems bordering on manipulative, right? Because they because they really are speaking Jack's language when they talk about creator own companies and maintaining rights, but it's also it's also fueling that long-standing feud in a way that really didn't need to be revitalized anymore that it already was at that point. Agreed, and particularly for Jack's fight in that feud that had long passed as where for McFarlane and all of the fellow founders of Image that they were in the throes of it. I mean, they had just boldly gone to Marvel and said, "Hey, we're out of here." We're all leaving. I mean, that was the mass exodus. And then had the gumption to walk across the street to DC and just inform them that they would never be working for them either, even though none of them were currently DC employees or being courted by DC. So it was it was quite the uh, bit of fire that was underneath everyone's belly at the time. And really the ringmaster in that whole venture and fire, if you will, was coming from McFarlane. He has been true. He has been the only founding member of Image never to go back to one of the major houses to do any sort of work. It's hard to realize uh, if you weren't around in the early 90s. I mean, I wasn't even that into comics in the early 90s, and I knew Todd, Todd McFarlane's name. He really made a huge splash at the time, was seen kind of as the bad boy of comics, right? And uh, really fired up a lot of people's imaginations and fueled kind of an independent creator movement, in general, just it was a really big deal at the time. I remember that. No, I do too, Ray. And actually, that is the perfect segue over to a little creative chatter to let's now focus in on Todd McFarlane and his career. So our Kirby kernel for this episode centers around Jack's involvement in the creation of Daredevil and Iron Man, as told by Mark Evanier on his blog, News From Me. Now, we know Mark is Jack's official biographer and worked with Jack pretty closely, particularly when he moved out to California. And this particular question is of great interest to us, and that is, what did Jack do on the first stories of Iron Man and Daredevil. What a great question. And to that, Mark responds, the first Iron Man story was wholly drawn by Don Heck. The first Daredevil story was drawn mainly by Bill Everett. 
Steve Ditko and Sal Brodsky completed the inking, mostly by filling in backgrounds. Kirby aided Everett in some undetermined manner, though he definitely did not do full breakdowns, as had been erroneously reported about this story and the first Iron Man. To this, Mark continues, these falsehoods I had a hand in spreading back in the early 70s. At the time, Jack claimed to have laid out those stories, and I repeated his claim in print, though not before checking with Heck, who said in effect, oh yeah, I remember that. Jack did the layouts. We all later realized he was mistaken. Soon after, I met Everett and found him to be equally confused. He initially confirmed it, and then when I told him I didn't think it looked like Kirby layouts, he said, oh, I guess it wasn't. The confusion in these in these cases is, I think, understandable. Heck and Everett both did do work over Jack's layouts, just not on those stories. Both also believed that Jack had contributed to the plots of those debut appearances, recollections that do not match those of Stan Lee. Larry Lieber did the script for the first Iron Man story from a plot that Stan gave him. Mark continues, also, in both cases, Jack had already drawn covers of those issues and done some amount of design work. He came up with the initial look of Iron Man's armor, and he seems to have participated in the design of Daredevil's first costume. My suspicion, after interviewing both Kirby and Everett on the topic and getting only vague remembrances from each, is that Jack worked up a costume and Everett modified it. To what extent, we'll probably never know. However, Everett did tell me that Jack had come up with the idea of Daredevil's Billy Club. Mark goes on to say, one of the things we have to keep in mind when researching this kind of thing or evaluating conflicting accounts is that you're often dealing with people who have had truly rotten memories. Jack's was sporadic, at least when he was speaking to the world on a convention panel or for an interview. He was a lot better in private conversations, especially with people he trusted. Stand almost brags about how poor his memory is, and Bill Everett had what we now politely term alcohol-related problems at the time of Daredevil number one. Further muddying up the memory is the fact that Jack, in effect, drew the first page, that first daredevil story in the rush to get that seriously late book to press there wasn't time to complete page one so stan had saul brodsky slot together a paste up that employed kirby's cover drawing you may note artie simic's lettering on that one page whereas sam rosen lettered the rest of the issue. Mark goes on to say the biggest question here is what else Jack did on the first Daredevil story. Everett volunteered to me that Jack had helped him, though he wouldn't, or more likely couldn't, elaborate on that. He just plain didn't remember it well, and in later years apparently gave others who asked a wide range of answers. That ranged from Jack contributing only encouraging words to working out the entire plot with him. The latter is what Jack recalled after he'd been corrected about actually doing the layouts. Stan says that's not so, and he may be right. Or... Everett may have sought out Kirby's help without telling Lee. So there's another one of those we may never know questions. 
However, I think, JJ, this is some really interesting insight from Mark Evanier and really shows in those early ages of the Silver Age and the bursting at the seams of creativity coming out of the House of Ideas, also known as Marvel, that there was so much collaboration going on, so many deadlines to be met, that truly many of these creations were that of the team as a whole. It really does point to, as you said, a clear collaboration among a large number of individuals. But at the same time, we're also seeing how much of a production the creation of a comic book was. There were different elements tackled by different people. And as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, there was very much an assembly line approach to it. The idea was you are producing or mass producing a product. And in doing so, there are certain, shall we say, concessions that you'll need to make. You may not have the time to do an entire issue. You may contribute a page, you may contribute the layout, you may contribute some dialogue. But in capturing all of that in the day, in their rush to get things to market, that's where we lose who actually did what. I think ultimately, they were pretty happy with the end result. JJ, great encapsulation right there and way to cap that off. I couldn't agree more. And you really summed it up for folks and gave us that pertinent reminder of really what it takes to put an issue out there on the newsstands at that time. So with that, why don't we move on to a little creative chatter where we'll talk about Frank Miller and also our artist, David Masicelli. So now over into our Kirby Colonel, this is brought to us by Jack Kirby historian Stan Taylor. And it's on the beginning of Jack Kirby's animation career. And what we mean by beginning is after he had become established as a comic book creator, he then in the 1970s made a transition over into animation for a period of time. And that's really what this deals with. And my reasoning behind making this our Kirby Colonel is just because of the close association between manga and anime. It seems over in Japan, there normally is the debut of a manga on a newsstand one month, and then shortly thereafter, here comes the anime series to the TV airwaves, or to be streamed nowadays too. So in 1978, Marvel had leased to an animation company the rights to produce a new animated Fantastic Four series. Mark Evanier, which I know you'll be familiar with that name, as he's also an official Kirby biographer and also colleague, younger this is, of Jax, had gotten a job writing for Hanna-Barbera and their comic line. He heard through the underground that Hanna-Barbera wanted a Kirby look and feel for their new cartoon. Evanier took it upon himself to go to the animation director and tell him that Jack Kirby was available if they really wanted a comic feel. A quick phone call from Hanna-Barbera Studios and Kirby was back where he had begun, working for an animation studio. Kirby and Marvel agreed that this working on the Fantastic Four series would count towards the pages required of his contract so they had no problem. Plus, it took him away from the nitwits in the office who were jealous of them. Man, you know, you got to figure at this time. <laughs> There's a lot to be jealous of as far as Jack's concerned, particularly at this stage of his career, Ray. But at this point, why would you want to be messing with Jack, you know? I mean, the guy is... The guy has proven his chops. I don't really understand, but there's always egos involved, it seems like, when you talk about these early comic shops. So True, true, true. As true to form, you know, Drac was known as being a quick worker. 
And Hanna-Barbera was a low-budget animation producer who had figured out a way to make cartoons on a shoestring. Where they used to make a cartoon on a $35,000 budget with TV, they were now slated only three to $4,000 an episode. To keep within these tighter budgets, Hanna-Barbera adopted the concept of limited animation, also called semi-animation, which quite frankly doesn't sound that animated to me, and practiced and popularized this, particularly with the United Productions of America, or UPA studio, which was once had a partnership with Columbia Pictures. The UPA style of limited animation was adopted by other animation studios and especially by TV cartoon studios such as Hanna-Barbera Productions. This was implemented as a cost-cutting measure, but at the same time, this also fed right into the strengths of one Jack Kirby. The rest of these productions, when not being worked on there at the studio, got farmed out over to the largest Japanese animator, Toho Studios. And they had also entered into a contract with UPA. So there's our Japan tie-in, Ray. So with Jack out from under the yoke of deadlines and assembly line comic creations and all that behind the scenes fighting. He then worked with the Debate Friedling Studios, a working partner of Hanna-Barbera. DF had started out as Warner Brothers Animation Studio when Fritz Friedling and David Debatier and others separated from Warners. And ultimately, Jack went on to be in charge of the artistic direction for this Fantastic Four animated series. Another interesting twist in all of this is that he couldn't get away from Stan Lee. Stan would come out to California to start up Marvel Productions and help bring some of these comic properties to not only animated series, but then would also eventually start working on movies and things of that nature. One of the interesting decisions made during this series was the removal of the Human Torch because apparently for licensing purposes, he was licensed over to somebody else at the time and they inserted this robot called Herbie, which was quite interesting given that it was 1978 right there in the throes and the heat of Star Wars mania, kind of looking R2-D2-ish, you know, much to the chagrin of core Fantastic Four fans guess it served its purposes for Saturday morning viewing. This was uh, one of my first superhero cartoons. I remember re- I remember seeing this one on the TV. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah, I also do too, along with Super Friends and specifically that whole Challenge of the Super Friends series that started there in the 70s. Was this, uh, was this the first time Jack worked with animation? No, I, he actually was painting cells super early in his career. I want to say when he was a teenager or in his early 20s for, you know, the shorts that would be shown at a matinee, a double feature or during a serialized viewing of stuff in the 30s. So I know he had dabbled in that before he had broken into comics. I mean, he was basically demonstrating his artistic chops. I knew we had talked before, I think, about his involvement in the Thundar the Barbarian project, but I couldn't remember what his first instance of, uh, you know, dealing with a, a, a TV series cartoon was. Oh, well, for TV series, it, it was right here in, in 78. But as far as animation in general, that would go back to those shorts 
of 30s, where he was basically coloring in cells as he was basically woodshedding and learning his craft and just needing to get paid. He must have been pretty irritated when Stan Lee got uh, involved with this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, what's crazy, Stan had recently moved to California and was brought in to help produce the cartoons while Kirby oversaw the art direction. So it's like, yo, you know, Stan, I, I, I thought I thought we were done collaborating, but here you are again. So it just can't shake Stan. <laughs> so with all of this, let's go ahead and transition to a little creative chatter and discuss our writer of Full Metal Alchemist, Hiromu. Arakawa. In our Kirby kernel, we have Kirby's Satan's Six, number one. It's like, wow, how metal is that? It's like, where did this come from? Well, I found an interesting blog entry by none other than Tony Isabella, and he is a very well-known writer, editor, and artist in comics. As a matter of fact, he invented the character Black Lightning for DC and then Black Goliath for Marvel. And he recounts, in the 1990s, Topps Comics leased the rights to several Jack Kirby creations. One of them was Satan Six, a series about five humans who were deemed not good enough for heaven and not bad enough for hell. The sixth member of the team was Frightful, a sort of demon top sergeant. As these humans were none too bright, they attempted to win their way into hell by doing bad deeds on earth. During my time, and this is Tony Isabella recounting as a writer, with them, things never went as planned. Kirby created most of Satan's six characters, drew two design sheets of them, and wrote and penciled eight pages of a story he never completed. My job was to develop the series and figure out how to use those eight pages in the first issue. And to continue or to supplement this story, I go to Bob, who is the default entry guy over at the Jack Kirby Museum's Jack Kirby Comics weblog. And Bob recounts that this is the only one of the Topps Kirbyverse books to actually feature more than just a cover by Jack Kirby. Not counting the cards, apparently, that were in this Topps things, because of course it's Topps, they have to have cards with it, that they were packaged with. He goes on to say that this eight-page Kirby story, not quite seamlessly mixed in among other pages, the single pages were inked by none other than Steve Ditko, Joe Sinat, Terry Austin, and Frank Miller, while Mike Royer also inked the remainder. There's also a centerfold by Kirby of the main characters. Kirby created these characters in the late 1970s for the unrealized Jack Kirby comics line, or it's been very affectionately referred to as the Kirbyverse. The few pages he did set up the premise, a group of lovable losers from throughout history looking to get out of purgatory and being sent to Earth. It would have been interesting to see exactly where Kirby would have gone with that. The actual series that was published had some fun stuff written by Tony Isabella, but the art was distractingly un-Kirby and just not very good, according to Bob. For the Kirby pages, Royer and Sanat are, of course, just about beyond reproach as Kirby anchors because they actually had worked directly with Jack throughout his career. Austin does a decent job, and he also says that Miller's style was a bit too heavy and which is fine for a single page. There was just, and that his favorite page that was inked was done by Steve Ditko. He, and he also says he enjoyed the Ditko Kirby art of the sixties. The cover of this particular 
issue was done by Todd McFarlane. And that is the story behind Satan's Six. That's a really cool concept. And it's funny, when I first was thinking about this, the fact that it almost came out in the 90s would have been perfect for the 90s. But the fact that Jack sort of invented this group of <laughs> people who caught between, you know, as early as he did, that it was he was kind of ahead of his time on that one. Yeah, I mean, he, he was ahead of his time in so many different lines and stories. I mean, I just go back to OMAC that we read back in August as far as the comic book character of the month, for example. I'm looking at the spread online right now. You can find that centerfold where they have all the characters. And, and it's quite a nice drawing, I think. It's six level, lovable dopes from Limbo. In order to get rid of them, Satan sends them back to Earth to earn their pitchforks. And you've got, uh, you've got a um, kind of a stud, like a knightly looking figure called Brian Blue Dragon. And then you've got, well, he's got kind of a Sherlock's home, Sherlock Holmesian look, but more of a Sherlock Holmes from the gutter look called Hard Luck Harrigan. There's a guy named Dr. Mortius that looks like the Hyde side of Jekyll and Hyde. There's Kuga the Lion Killer, which is a obviously a African, what am I trying to say? Not a Zulu, maybe a Zulu. What's the tribe from Kenya? Anyway, a tall warrior, big strong warrior. And then you got Desira of Babylon and, and then a um, uh, one of Kirby's like monstrous demon type creatures called Frightful. And that's the, obviously that's the sergeant there. Kind of a brick of a character. They're really cool. Really cool. It is cool. It is very cool. And again, something that really doesn't get a whole play considering just how prolific Jack was throughout his career. And this coming out again, very late in his career, but the premise and initial renderings, the seventies, just, just crazy. And you know, it's funny. We had, talked about Jack and where he would find time for some of this stuff. I mean, he did collage and it just seemed the ideas just kept pouring out of him and he would quick capture them and put them to the side. And it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if he had been allowed to build out this Kirby verse. And I have a feeling that this may have been around the same time that Jack had just gotten back with Marvel was working on Devil Dinosaur Machine Man and then had worked and then moved over to animation helping with the Fantastic 4 series. So Kirby was interesting in how he managed to stay relevant for so long even past his clearly past his prime, you know, when he when he was a little shakier with his drawings and a little more scattered with his ideas. He still had such a font of creativity that people were seeking him out and they I think he just generally was a the kind of champion or the Rudy that you wanted on your bench, right? He's the guy that he's the guy that inspired everybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think he lived up to, in the best sense of the term, his blue collar upbringing. He was a lunch pail guy. They'd say he starts a ham and egger. He would get dirty, was prolific with regard to page output, just a grinder. But in addition to being a grinder, just endless ideas flowing out of that brain and onto the page. Great stuff. Well, you know, someone that was very much inspired by Jack is our author. So why don't we head over to a little creative chatter and let's discuss our writer and artist here of Hellboy Omnibus, Seed of Destruction, Mike Mignola. All right. So now in our Kirby kernel, we're going to delve into the origin of X-Men number one, which appeared in September of 1963. If folks will recall when I did the origin story episode of Doom Patrol, Doom Patrol came out in June 
1963. And that was Arnold Drake's brilliantly maddening tale of those foundational characters that we will actually be delving into in our review of Doom Patrol to some extent. But back to 1963, there was something in the zeitgeist, something in the air. You would have the emergence of the Fantastic Four out of the House of Ideas, along with X-Men. And in mid-1963, Stan Lee was on a roll. In a mad burst of invention, he and star artist Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko had just birthed the Fantastic Four. Spider-Man, the Hulk, Thor, and Iron Man. Marvel was humming along. Of course, all of these were at the fine low price of 12 cents. A comic book? Wow. And I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles was also on the charts. Lee at the time was only 40 years old. But boy, that really tells you something right there as far as the longevity of Stan's career. Doing double duty as both Marvel Comics editor-in-chief and head writer. Fresh from 20 years of writing Western romance and monster comics starring beasts named Grudo, Brutu, and Rumbu. But their return to superheroes and that entire genre was quite the accomplishment. Marvel's growing fan base couldn't get enough. So around this time, assembled a team there at Marvel, and the plotting began for the Avengers, along with The Amazing Spider-Man number four. Lee stood at his typewriter on the terrace of his Long Island home, trying to come up with more heroes. First came the characters, a guy who shoots beams from his eyes, a human ice machine, a telekinetic teenage girl, their mentor, a telepath in a wheelchair. But how did they get their powers? Well, they were separate people. They weren't connected to each other. So that would be a hell of a job to try to bring them together. He'd already done so many tropes, such as a radioactive accident, gamma rays. So Lee said, you know what? The heck with it. I'm just going to take the cowardly way out. And I figured, hey, the easy thing to do is they were born that way. And I'm going to call them mutants. So he called the team the mutants until Marvel's publisher told him, no, 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 no. That is not catchy enough. We're not going to use that term, the mutants. So he put his head down and started to talk about, okay, since they were born this way and they're mutants, let's call these things X-Men, these people X-Men, because he figured they have extra powers and their leader is Professor Xavier. Lee spent maybe a day on the proposal and another day plotting the issue. Then Jack Kirby, in his pulp genius goodness, came in there chomping on a cigar and designed all the characters as he drew them for the first story. So it's all there in X-Men number one, the entire foundation. But what is quite interesting about this is just like the book that we are reviewing today, Doom Patrol, it's peer at the time, Doom Patrol, would also be a, quote, second-rate comic, really not coming into its own until written by and penciled by others. Of course, X-Men would go through a rebirth in the 70s when Len Wein would come in, would develop new characters such as Wolverine, adding Wolverine to the crew, but really reached its zenith, yes, folks, for our UK audience, or zenith, when Chris Claremont took over and was at the helm for nearly 17 years in an epic run of this team of superheroes. So folks, that's how X-Men came about. And focusing in on Jack's specific role here, he was responsible for the entire look and feel and visual storytelling of that team. Much like the Arnold Drake teaming up 
that happened with Doom Patrol. And Stan may have gotten a little inspiration from Arnold. After all, the chief is in a wheelchair. Professor Xavier's in a wheelchair. You can see where we're going with this, folks. There was a lot of back and forth between these two big houses. And I just thought I'd share that with you all because as we delve into Doom Patrol, you are going to see an awful lot of similarities. And through the years, there has been a lot of mm, creative inspiration that's been exchanged by the two houses. How does that sound, Doc? That sounds very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We like to celebrate comics here, folks, not stir the pot and drum up controversy. So with that being said, Doc, let's head over into a little creative chatter where we will talk about our writer, Grant Morrison, and our artist, Richard Case. So, folks, as we head over into our Kirby Colonel there is direct linkage between Grant Morrison and Jack Kirby. Now, mind you, many would say, okay, Grant is a prolific writer. We're certain he has written Kirby characters. Yes, that's indeed the case, but we're going to go a little deeper because although Jack was also a great writer of comics, he is best known for his illustrations. Well, here is an example of where Grant Morrison drew Kirby character. And that was in none other than Captain Victory. Captain Victory is a comic book originally created, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby. It was first published by American comic book publisher Pacific Comics in 1981. Jack agreed to create a comic for the fledgling publisher because Pacific promised him full creative control and ownership of the characters. One of Pacific Comics' first titles, the original run of Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, lasted 13 issues, plus a special through January of 1984. All were written, illustrated, and edited by Jack Kirby. In the last issue of the Pacific series, Kirby crafted an origin story for Captain Victory, which he tied to the New Gods comic book that he had written and drawn for DC Comics in the 1970s. It was suggested that Captain Victory was the son of Orion of the New Gods. Orion was not specifically named, but a number of clues were planted, including equipment said to belong to Captain Victory's father that was identical to the Astro Harness written by Orion in the earlier series. Additionally, Captain Victory's grandfather, Black Moss, was illustrated only as a cast shadow, but a shadow that to many readers bore a resemblance to Orion's father, Darkseid. Now, where does Grant come into this? Grant draws Jack Kirby's Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers in 2014. For the final issue of this limited series, which was put out by Dynamite Comics, he was pulled in with a lot of other big names. There was a series regular, Nathan Fox, who was writing and illustrating there. And then you had Benjamin Mara, Dan McDade, Jim Afood, Michael Fife. Nick Dragata, Tradmore, and well, when it was launched, Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers strive to push all the boundaries of sequential telling. It was a noble goal. Creative teams hope could honor the legacy of Jack Kirby here in 2014. A legendary writer and artist, of course, Jack, that visual styling and design sense of the Silver Age of comics is in there. So Jack, again, introduced Captain Victory character to audiences in 84. After five issues of star-spanning adventure, wherein the crew of the Tiger lost their captain and the titular hero underwent an unbelievable transformation, the final issue of the Captain Victory series 
promises something that Jack Kirby tantalized readers with many years back, but only in passing. Basically, the secret origin of Captain Victory. They brought in Morrison specifically for this, which I thought was pretty cool. Regarding his part in the Captain Victory project, Grant had the following to say. I've written a couple of Jack Kirby characters in the past, but the opportunity to draw one was too good to pass up, as was the chance to work on a script by the unstoppable Joe Casey. I've known Joe for years, and we're both devotees of the King's Cosmos, but Captain Victory marks our first collaboration and our first chance to indulge in some Kirby-related celestial hijinks together. There you are, our writer, Grant Morrison here of The Invisibles, paying tribute to Jack Kirby by drawing in that last issue of that Captain Victory comic. It's pretty It's pretty cool. It's like, it, it, it asks the question, what's more rare, Grant Morrison drawing a Jack Kirby character or Jack Kirby drawing Batman? Which one's more rare? <laughs> exactly. A- exactly. And well stated because Morrison got his start in comics actually as an artist and uh, artist illustrator this is before ever breaking into the writing ranks. And he was actually providing his artistry for local papers there in Glasgow, Scotland. Quickly figured out that there were more gifted visual artists than he. However, his mind, as far as writing and scripting, was very fertile. And he really chose to go that transitional route after having a brief stint in music. So with that being said, Doc, let's go ahead over and engage in a little creative chatter about our writer, Grant Morrison. Well, Ray, in this Kirby kernel, we're going to talk about the establishment of what? The Microverse. Yes, folks, that's right. And Ant-Man, created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby, was the establishment of the Microverse with Ant-Man's first appearance in Tales to Astonish number 35 in September of 1962. The first man to take the identity of Ant-Man was Henry Pym or Hank Pym. It got his start in an unexpected place. Tales to Astonish was one of those typical post-Golden Age genre bending anthology books. The only thing that really stood out about this anthologies was the magnificent talent that lent their vision to the voices of this short-form tales. So Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby, and other creators would go ahead and contribute towards what would become that Marvel Age there in the Silver Age. But they did it by first trying out characters in these anthology series. So Tales to Astonish number 27 is where they presented Henry Pym, a scientist that discovered a way to shrink down matter and eventually himself. However, it was until Tales to Astonish number 35 that you actually had him developing into an actual superhero that we've come to know the Ant-Man character of today. So with that, this shrinking man, this shrinking man story then led to an entire universe that would then be one occupied by, ultimately, the Micronauts there in the late 70s. Yeah, that was a really clever tie-in to marry that microverse to the toy line. And interestingly, the microverse makes a small appearance in the movie line. Ant-Man in the first Ant-Man movie, I think, visits the microverse when he gets super shrunk. Indeed he does. Indeed he does. And you can't help but think also when they're doing that time travel sequencing there in Endgame, that there might have been some moving through the microverse to eventually get to those other time periods, or it may have had a role to play in the travels of the Avengers as they were trying to essentially solve 
solve their issues. Man, if Time Traveler had shown up, I would have really freaked out in the movie theater. <laughs> that would have been a great Easter egg for me. Agreed, agreed. So folks, let's head over next to a little creative chatter about our writer, Cullen Bunn, and also our artists, Max Dunbar and J.H. Williams. And we're turning to the savage land in Antarctica, because actually Whiteout takes place in Antarctica. And we turn to the savage land first appearing as the land where time stands still in Marvel Mystery Comics number 22 from August 1941. The tale, Core, the Black Sorcerer by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, and Sejours. It then gained its familiar form and moniker in X-Men number 10 from March 1965, courtesy of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. They introduced the Savage Land as being a hidden prehistoric land appearing in American comic books at various different times in Marvel. But this tropical preserve is hidden in Antarctica. The story arc here from Uncanny X-Men is actually a takeoff of the Edgar Rice Burroughs classic, The Land That Time Forgot. Oh yeah, The Land That Time Forgot. That's a great one. That's one of the classic Lost World stories. Really, you know, is... Kind of Edgar Rice Burroughs' more pulpy take on Sir Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's *The Lost World*. Yes, yes, and what's also keen uh, for me on this is coming off of Appendix N month, where we were paying tribute to all of those influences towards the development of Dungeons and Dragons. Obviously, Edgar Rice Burroughs is one of those authors, and *The Land That Time Forgot* has got a fantastic menagerie of prehistoric creatures and all that good stuff. So really, really rich as far as a world builder is concerned. I was wondering how you were going to draw the parallel between Kirby comic, because in some ways this comic is about as un-Kirby-esque as it gets. And we'll obviously talk about that more as, as we get into the comic. But I think this is a nice point of correlation in that Antarctica is one of those final frontiers right? And it's tough as we move into the modern age to find spaces that are liminal or completely out of the realm of what's been explored, where some of these fantastical elements or unexpected elements can take place. And uh, while, th while the comic we're looking at today is in no way a fantasy or it doesn't have any fantastic elements, it is it is something that needed to happen in in our in a space that wasn't you know like New York or some other well populated well known space. I think that adds a lot to the comic. Indeed, it does. Indeed, it does. And Ray, before we delve deep here into our story, let's engage in a little creative chatter about our writer Greg Rucka and our artist Steve Lieber. In this episode, we're going to hone in on Denny O'Neill our writer. Ray, I know I try to normally get something where Jack is directly related into the story, but I have to tell you, was not able to find a direct connection between Jack and Fritz Lieber. However, there are a ton of connections between Jack and Denny O'Neill since they had actually worked together. Matter of fact, after graduating from St. Louis University, Denny O'Neill was a journalist before applying for work at Marvel in 1965. He was given four pages of images by prolific comic artist Jack Kirby with no text attached. O'Neill had to write a story. His work impressed the legendary head of Marvel, Stan Lee, and he was hired as an editorial assistant as a result. Talk about a true baptism by fire to test how good of a writer and editor and I you have by having to essentially fit your dialogue to the King's images. 
Once Denny was then hired, he was approached by Jack himself and told that this was a suit and tie job and encouraged him to go to Macy's and buy appropriate attire for working at Marvel. Denny apparently embraced the counterculture at the time, and Jack very much embraced the established way that he was brought up into the business during the Golden Age. So definitely a generational clash from the get-go, but they would go on to have a very respectful working relationship there at Marvel and then also over at DC. Interesting times when you think of the blue-collar Jack as being the, the suit and tie guy. Indeed. It's kind of kind of crazy, but I guess that was publishing back in the day. And when you took a look at all of those gumshoe investigative reporters and folks out of the 40s, I mean, they were dressed to the nines. They had their hat, they had their suit, their tie, and boom, that was the uniform for doing the job. And what's really surprising here, Ray, is that that carried well over into mid-60s there culturally, as far as Marvel was concerned, but they would be coming out of that 60s decade looking a little more different in the workplace. I'm certain of that. Yeah, the suit didn't become the symbol of the establishment until, like you said, the the late 60s. Before that, it was just like uh, the coveralls, right? It was, uh, if you were a mechanic, you went to coveralls, otherwise you went to work in a suit. Exactly. So speaking of Denny O'Neill, right, let's head into a little creative chatter about our writer, Denny O'Neill, and our artist, Howard Shakin. And in today's Kirby Colonel, we get into Kirby Draws Zombies. And this comes from The Case of the Hollow Men, a 13-page Joe Simon and Jack Kirby story from the 1941 debut issue of All Winners Comics, featuring Captain America. In this story, the Lord of Death, on orders from Hitler, changes Bowery bums to zombies. Zombies, Bucky! They're zombies! cries Captain America and sets them loose to sabotage ships bound for England on the Lend-Lease programs. Cap and Bucky go undercover to take care of it, and the story has Bucky giving Hitler a raspberry. Wow. There you go, Doc. Uh, this was, I was not aware that this even existed, and I feel like a better person for now having read it. <laughs> this is, it is bizarre. I mean, you know, there were obviously, it was a flood of comics that were, you know, that were show the loathing for Adolf Hitler and the Reich, but this one went way beyond. It is just like, I don't even know how to describe it. it it's just crazy. It's batch, it's that poop crazy. Keep it, keep it PG. <laughs> it's really fun. It shows a little bit more like absurdity than you get in most of these comics that were anti-Hitler and everything. And it's just a lot of fun. This is definitely one that's worth seeking out just for maybe a little bit of historical context with Kirby and drawing zombies for the first time. Indeed, indeed. And again, that's the natural draw here of this being a zombie tale and Jack Kirby then drawing zombies with Joe Simon's script for the case of the hollow man. So doc, with that being said, let's head over to a little creative chatter and let's get to know a little bit better. Our writer, Robert Kirkman and our artist, Tony Moore. All right. In today's Kirby Colonel, we're talking Jack Kirby, Western comics. And of course, Western comics had their heyday in the 1950s and 60s, particularly in the fifties. Once the comics code was initiated and these ended up being the bread and butter, along with romance comics, of all things, that Jack sunk his teeth into, not only to survive as a professional artist in the comic book industry, but then eventually to survive and then thrive in the heyday of the superheroes, which would come along in the early to mid-60s with the Fantastic Four and 
just the explosion of all of those iconic characters that we've grown to know and love. Now, over on the Western side of the house, Kirby in the 50s and 60s was drawing for Kid Colt Outlaw, the Rawhide Kid, which happens to be our comic book character of the month for June, being Western Comics Month, Two-Gun Kid, and Gunsmoke Western. So Jack had his hand really deep into Western comics, not only as a creative force, but really for practical purposes, Doc, in order for him to continue to make a living in his profession. And of course, also surviving along those times would end up being Stan Lee, and they collaborated on many of those titles as they were mainly Marvel titles. So with that, you can view many of Jack's fine works, particularly his covers over at the kirbymuseum.org. Just place into that search Western comics and it brings up a treasure trove of a lot of Jack's beautiful work. And if you wish to view those works, I would highly encourage you to hop on board if you haven't done this already. By the time you're listening to us review Shadows West, Take a look at those Rawhide Kid selections for the month of June to see Jack Kirby in his Western comics finest. So let's, Doc, now head on over and for a little creative chatter about our writer, Joe R. Lansdale, and our artist, Timothy Truman. Whatever I put in my comics, I hopefully feel that this love of people may have been transmitted to them and help them and help them. Not helping in any way, I'm not a psychiatrist, but just giving them another friend. 